Welcome everyone to Saving UX. I'm your host, Jeremy Kriegel, and I believe that UX is in trouble. Now, there's probably more people doing this work at, than at any other point in history, but my hypothesis is that we are seeing less impact per capita than perhaps we've had in the past. Now, Saving UX is not about saving this career that I've poured a quarter century of my life into. It's really about having the biggest positive impact on the organizations and the people we serve. I truly believe that UX, when done well and applied to the right problems, can change people's lives. Now with me today, I have Dan Brown. Dan is a longtime UX veteran, co-founder of Eight Shapes, author of multiple design books and even a few design games. Dan, thank you so much. It's great to chat with you again. Jeremy, it's always nice to chat with you. Cool. Now, for those who might not be familiar with you, would you mind giving maybe a brief arc of your career, maybe a little bit about how you started and sure. any notable changes in the middle and where you are now? Yeah, yeah, sure. Happy to. Uh, yeah, as you said, uh, me and my business partner, Nathan Curtis, started Eight Shapes uh, back in 2006. And so I've been doing this uh, for nearly 15 years. Uh, we provide UX consulting um, and um, uh, to a variety of clients uh, all over all over the world. Uh, before that, I was a government contractor, uh, so I had spent maybe, uh, I'm based in the D.C. area, so I spent maybe three or four years uh, hopping around to different government contractors, uh, cutting my teeth on uh, really complex uh, problems, uh, you know, citizen-based uh, design, uh, before it was cool uh, to do that. So I was doing that, you know, before there was an 18F or a U.S. digital service or anything, anything like that. Uh, before that, I worked for an internet consultancy uh, here in the D.C. area, and uh, by now, uh, I, I started that in 97, uh, which is when I moved to D.C. Before then, I was at a, a book publisher. So in the mid-90s, I got a job at a book publisher uh, doing internet work, so I was kind of a jack-of-all-trades, uh, which is how I got my start uh, in, in this business. Uh, and it was only once uh, the, the field had matured a bit, so say late 90s, that I was able to call myself an information architect and soon thereafter sort of focused on, on UX design. Uh, as you said, in, in, in amidst all of that, I wrote um, three books, Communicating Design, Designing Together, and Practical Design Discovery uh, about what I think are kind of the more interesting, complicated parts uh, of design. Uh, and uh, one of those books, Designing Together, did start out as a card game uh, called Surviving Design Projects, which is all about kind of the complexities of dealing with difficult situations uh, in design projects because there are a lot of them. So I think the biggest interesting change that's happened maybe more recently is that um, our firm has gotten uh, smaller uh, and I think it's gotten smaller in part because there's less of an appetite to hire a big design team to kind of come into an organization. And what they're looking for is a smaller number of people with, um, uh, let's say, um, the right mindset and um, the capacity to think about really complex problems, uh, which 
uh, is different from what we how we got our start. Right, Eight Shapes used to be a, a design firm, and we would show up for a project with three, four, or five uh, people uh, to kind of do end-to-end -end, uh, UX stuff. And we're not doing those kinds of things anymore. We're we're getting much more entrenched in our clients for longer periods of time to work on really complex UX problems. Um, and so I think that speaks to at least some of the changes that I've seen uh, in the UX world. I mean, it sounds like there's some good pros and cons there. I mean, long-term relationship, working on strategic, hairy problems. I mean, that's a good, that's a good thing, right? That's what yep. we're, what we're trying to do. So what, what's the downside? What, what's not working well, as well as you had hoped? Uh, I mean, I guess from a, just from a strict business perspective, right? It's kind of, uh, it's more profitable to have more people uh, around, right? Billing, billing clients, right? So there's, there's that angle uh, to it. Um, I think um, there are a couple of challenges. I don't know if they're downsides per se, because uh, I think every, every job is hard uh, to a greater or lesser extent. Um, but the, the challenges that I face are um, that uh, internal design teams are less mature um, uh, insofar as, and, and I'm not trying to um, blame anyone or anything of course. On, on this. I mean, I think there's sort of lots, of, lots and lots of reasons um, uh, why things are the way they are. My definition of adulthood, by the way, is uh, acknowledging that there is no simple explanations for anything, right? It's like, uh, a doesn't cause B. It's like A through Z causes B, right? So there's there's lots of myriad reasons why why things happen. Anyway, and I, I think on top of that, we can always assume positive intent that everyone right. is doing the best they can just with trying. the yeah. scenario and the skills they have, right? One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think so. You know, let's break down some of these some of these things that challenges that that we're facing, right? I think there's uh, a um, software development has uh, as as a field and as a practice has gone through lots of different uh, changes. UX has never really understood its place uh, there. And so some of the, the things that we encounter in our clients are folks whose, um, jo whose design jobs have become, let's say, fairly rote or um, mechanical or, you know, very much focused on uh, producing um, uh, design artifacts for the things, the products that they they work on, which is a necessary function. But does that necessarily afford the ability to take a step back and ask yourself, are we building the right thing? What are the what are the hard parts about this uh, product that we really need to think deeply about that might not fit into a sprint uh, structure in uh, the way that our organization has come to uh, expect it. Um, so I think that's one of the, the challenges that we face is like there's still this kind of disconnect between how the organization works to produce, um, it, to develop its digital products and the kinds of problems that, they're, um, that they need to solve, that they uh, bring in eight shapes or a firm like ours uh, to help, help solve. I think there are perfectly capable folks inside the organization who can try and solve these, but they're kind of caught up in the stream of software development that it's hard to kind of pull them out and really give them a chance to, to think deeply about these things. Now, I mean, I've heard this dichotomy uh, pointed out, the difference between problem finding and problem solving. Right. And it sounds like you're even saying like with, even within the realm of problem solving, 
it sounds like it's very tactical and you're seeing that teams aren't given the, the ability to think more broadly about deeply about those problems, let alone the problem finding piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, and I think it's not even problem finding and maybe even that we have an awareness of what the problems are, but problem understanding. Right. I mean, just taking the time to really understand what is the problem. Uh, I mean, I can think of projects um, that I've worked on in the last two years where we know there's a problem. We keep trying to solve the problem, but I can't say for sure that everyone would be able to really uh, encapsulate what the problem uh, is, what it is that we're, we're really trying to solve for. Everyone's got a different perspective on that, and we haven't taken the time to reconcile those different perspectives or validate those perspectives or elaborate uh, on, on what the problem is so that we truly understand what it is that we're trying to solve. Um, you know, another, another thing that we can point to is the move fast and break things uh, attitude, right? Um, uh, I feel like um, there's something to be said for um, for that approach. Like, let's put stuff in front of people and just see what happens. We, you know, we've all talked to death about the dark side of that and that the, the impact that it's had on our society over the last few years. But I think just generally, it's harder to do UX when. Um, there's one expected speed, right? We have a highway system that allows us to move at different speeds depending on what the need is. That is true for how design works too. Sometimes we can move fast and sometimes we need to move slow. And if the expectation is always moving fast, then I think we're not um, empowered to uh, recognize, as you say, identify, find, recognize, elaborate on uh, the problems that need solving. So how do you see that dichotomy of speed? Like, when is it appropriate for UX to be moving fast? And when should we be slowing down? And how is that um, conflicting with the cadence of the organizations? Right. I mean, I, I, um, I'm going to speak in abstractions now because I feel like it's, it's um, uh, a little easier to kind of draw some to make some broad generalizations um, rather than be um, very specific about what's happening in different places because it's it reality is often uh, far messier um, of course. But I think we can we can um, talk about sort of you know uh, management or executive level expectations about moving fast we can talk about management and expect and executive level um, expectations about how design works right I think that that plays a role. Um, I do think that um, there are design problems that can be solved quickly, right? HAPES, one of the things that we're known for is helping organizations stand up a design system. And the whole point of a design system is to be able to quickly address known design problems uh, quickly, right? If we've got a good sense of what the problem is, if we can put something out there without causing um, too much harm, if we can um, um, have mechanisms to gather feedback once we push something out there, then yeah, by all means, do it fast. But I think what happens is we conflate um, our ability to do these things fast with um, uh, um, this idea that we can solve every problem uh, the same way. Another value of a design system is that it solves some of the more rote or fundamental problems so that we can devote our, our time and money and resources to thinking more deeply about the harder 
uh, problems, right? I don't shouldn't have to redesign the button every time. We've got that. Let me think more deeply about how can I most effectively help someone, um, you know, complete this process, right? That is a complicated uh, thing. I shouldn't have to think deeply about what the button looks like. So um, uh, I think um, you asked me um, when can we move fast and when can we move uh, slow and I think yeah, when should we slow down yeah and I, I think when we should slow down when um, I mean first and foremost top of mind for me these days is could this process cause harm could this product cause harm if it if there's even the remotest chance that it might be used for harm let's slow the way down slow all the way down and see what we can do to prevent or circumvent or at least acknowledge what uh, what could happen here. I think also there are, um, uh, uh, there's a demand to support more complex business processes using digital products. Um, most of the work that I do is looking at a, a business process and saying, what tool can we build to support this uh, process? And this is not, um, you know, in the old days, this was like, you know, uh, fulfilling uh, you know, e-commerce fulfillment or whatever it is. And now it's how do we, you know, make sure um, that uh, I can't, I can't be very specific about the kinds of projects I'm sure, working sure. on, but you know, things that are far more complex and involve far more moving parts, far more people. Um, how can we uh, support their needs? Well, we can, I can produce a lot of screens that attempt to solve the uh, attempt to address those needs. But if I don't really understand a, what the problems are and B, which ones are the ones that really need solving, then, uh, I'm just going to be producing a lot of stuff fast. That doesn't have any value. But it's not like we don't know how to understand these problems, how to gather that information, synthesize it. There, there's a rich, uh, uh, discipline there. What's w either what's getting in the way of doing that work or, what beliefs exist within some of these organizations where they're, they don't, they don't want to take on that, that effort. Actually, I just, I disagree with you. I think there are okay. lots of, I think, uh, I think a lot of, when you say we, I think you're talking about UX designers, right? And I think, uh, or product designers, right? And I do think that there are cohorts of product designers that have not been exposed to the experience yeah. of, um, surfacing, and stating uh, design problems. I don't think that there are, I think there are cohorts of product designers and UX folks who have not been exposed to rigorous prioritization exercises where we say we are gonna build that and we're not gonna build that. Um, I think those, those things that a lot of us cut our teeth on um, are not happening in the same way or involving the same people. Um, because um, uh, I, I don't know even why it's not happening. It's just not happening. Um, and I also think that uh, there are cohorts of product designers who are not familiar with the deep thinking techniques uh, and approaches that um, uh, we had been afforded the opportunity to do earlier in our careers. Um, I'm allowed to call myself an information architect still because I still get to do IA work. But I think there are a lot of people who are doing IA work that don't understand they're doing IA work and don't know, um, have not been um, coached 
on how to do it uh, effectively. Do you think we lost something? Obviously, it's a bias. It's a leading question. Uh, do you think we lost something when we went from having distinct titles that represented some of the different skill sets, IA, interaction design, visual design, content, et cetera, to just being this single UX designer, product designer, you know, jack of all trades? Is that a pro or a con, pulling all those disciplines under one title? I mean, I'm an IA, so I like putting things in boxes and categorizing them and give them nuanced labels um, with little asterisks next to them to say, you know, I, I know this label mostly works, but I also know that there are parts of it that don't work. And so, um, so I love doing that, right? That's, that's just what I do. Um, uh, I mean, I got to reorganize my pantry recently and I got to, my wife got me all of these little plastic containers um, that we could put labels on. I was not allowed to make the labels because her handwriting is much, much better than mine, but I was able to, I was allowed to organize um, uh, the containers. And, you know, I've got a shelf of different kinds of flowers, right? Because we have a variety of baking uh, needs um, and a different, um, a variety of um, like nuts and seeds uh, because we have apparently a lot of those. And where, where, does, um, where does ground up coconut go? Like which of those shelves? Is it a flower or is it a nut of some sort or does it need its own shelf? I mean, I could spend a whole podcast just talking about that. So um, there's, there's value in a more holistic view of design. There's something appealing to me about a generalist and that's very self-serving because I think of myself as a generalist with a specialty in information architecture uh, or user research, right? So I, I, I think there's value in product in, in the title, say product designer, because I do think it's something where we should be able to ask a product designer to think about all the different aspects of designing a product. I also think a product designer needs to be... Um, self-aware enough to say, look, I'm the kind of product designer that really focuses on screens, but if there's kind of a structural or a navigation issue, I really want to be able to bring in someone who has uh, more expertise on information architecture so we can think more deeply about those structural uh, issues. I don't think people think like that. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I'm, I'm not seeing that, that kind of nuance. Uh, it's Product designer or researcher, those, that's the real distinction I see these days. Hmm. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you like having the, the generalist as a title as long as we're still recognizing kind of the subdisciplines and the skills that go into that title with the expectation that maybe not everyone has all of those skills, even if they have that title. You're not expecting them to be the same person, to be an expert researcher and information architect and visual designer. Uh, they might have some strengths or some general skills, but not, not, not deep in all those areas. Right. I mean, Did I get that right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I'm fairly opinionated, for example, about research. You know, I, I, I worry as much about the separation of the research function. I see this, uh, you know, I have friends who are, are just UX researchers. That's just what they do. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, I think I'm going to get in trouble saying this out loud, but I think it misses the point. Right, I think it. I think separating that out misses the point of of what research 
is and how it works within user experience. Um, uh, as a designer, my role is to um, design uh, a digital product. And part of my process for designing that project product is to uh, imagine what it could be, show that to someone who is likely to use it, get their feedback on it, and uh, integrate my observations into that concept. It's also to say, I don't know where to start with this concept, so I'm gonna go talk to some people and find out what they need uh, and how they think about this thing. Um, like that, that is design. I know we call those activities research, but that is doing design work. Um, it's not just moving the rectangles around on the screen. So by decoupling research from, you know, moving the rectangles around on the page, I think um, that is uh, that I think is causing some genuine harm because it it absolves a designer of the responsibility of um, and accountability of uh, evaluating testing uh, the work that they that they're doing. Hmm. Would it's an it's an interesting um, assertion. I'm curious from from my perspective, I would and I'm, I'm sure you'd agree that test facilitation is a very uh, specific skill. Yes, you know, being able to elicit the the right kind of feedback with the right questions and creating the right context and framing all that is a very there's a lot there's a lot of depth there. Yes. So I guess I challenge it. Can you get that feedback even if you're not the person sitting in the room, uh, but you're observing? Can can you get support in that way, or do you have? Does it have to be all in one person? And I guess I might say the same on the design side. You know, well, you know, if someone's a great facilitator and they're great at the the, the IA and the structure layout, do you expect that they're going to be good at the at, at, you know working in Sketch and the visuals right. and the branding and all yeah. that? Yes, uh, I, it, it is. You are right to challenge me uh, on those on those things. I don't know the right. I don't know the right answer. My hope is, uh, my my hope is, if you call yourself a product designer, that you could do those things if push came to. Even if you acknowledge you're not strong in those things, you acknowledge that there's a need. You understand what the need is like to think about navigation versus UI. Um, you acknowledge that there's a need to seek feedback in a structured way um, and, and that, that that is part of the design process. Um, and I definitely agree with that. Yeah, and, and yes, it may, uh, the scale of things that people are working on are huge these days. So if there's a need to outsource those things, so be it. But um, uh, I mean, um, Outsourcing them, having someone else do it, and then give you a, a punch list of things to update—I think that's, right, that's not going to be. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You, you still need to have that that interaction or that that direct engagement, even as an observer, to be able to develop the empathy that's going to help you make better decisions. Exactly. Exactly. Completely agree with that. Um, before you made a comment about UX not understanding its place. Did I say that? Yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of curious, like, you know, like what if you could dig into that a little bit? Um, 
I don't remember what, exactly what I said. I say things and then so I don't have to remember them. So like. <laughs> I don't even know what I was. Well, if it comes to you, we'll come back to that. If not, no, we'll just edit this out of the out of the recording. Um, not understanding its place in the uh, process, like in the organization with it, with respect to the organization and the yeah. organizational process. You talked about how, I think it was you talking about how software development had iterated yeah. quite a bit in its process, right? And I think how UX hadn't quite uh, understood how it fits into that, right? So, so I think software de- modern software development tries to be as factory like as it possibly aspires to be uh, a factory, right? Uh, we have a feature, we know what it is, we've lined up the resources we need to build that feature, we're gonna go build that feature, it's gonna take us two weeks because we've told the, told our process everything's gonna take uh, two weeks, right? And so it's a great way of getting stuff done. Like it, it works, it gets things done. And I admire that um, about it. But um, uh, the kinds of things that UX needs to get done, or let me put it this way, some of the things that UX needs to get done doesn't fit into that kind of uh, process, right? Into that kind of mechanism. Um, and so uh, UX needs to live with its, I don't know the right metaphor, right? A, a foot in each world, right? In the world of my role here is to, um, is to be a, a cog in this machine uh, and my role here is to question the machine, right? My role here is to kind of take that step back and say, are we building the right things here? Are we actually meeting someone's need? Are we, uh, what, what, how, how can I make adjustments to our vision of what this thing is trying to do in order to better align with, um, with what the users need? How can I be even more empathetic uh, to our target audience, right? That's not a... I mean, maybe the simplest way of saying this, and I have my own issues with the word empathy, but um, uh, you cannot build empathy using agile methodology, right? I mean, maybe that's kind of the, it it takes more than a sprint to build empathy, um, right? And so I think if maybe what I meant by doesn't know what its place is, is there's some incompatibilities with the aspirations of product design relative to the aspirations of software development. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, um, I remember years ago, Jeff Patton used to talk about product as a team led by a person, yeah, as opposed to just the person. And UX was more on the, the product team than on the, the scrum team or, or the development team. Right. But it does seem like more and more, there are a lot of UX people who have tasks in JIRA and they're committing to the same two-week cadence as opposed to working closer with product to figure out what are we trying to accomplish, how are we going to accomplish that, and more being on the, the uh, earlier side of that and the story grooming and the, and the, and the purpose uh, side of the, of the work. Right, right. All right, well, we agree there. Great. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> cool. Um, Within this context, you know, I think there's a lot of things we talk about in terms of feels like, well, it's this group is doing this and these people do this. Where do we have control? Either what are the things that that kind of are the own goals that we're doing to ourselves? And where do we have the ability to make changes within the the boundaries that we're given? I mean, I love the, what is it, the serenity prayer, like accept the things you can't change, 
change the things you can. Yeah. And I like to think of maybe a middle ground of there might be some things I can't change, but where I might have some influence. Right. So where are the, what are the things that, I, that people can change and focus on and where might they have influence to change some other things from your perspective? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard to, I think it's hard for me to speak to that only because I've been so, uh, I've, I, I'm, I'm the fortunate, I see it, uh, position of being very much on the outside um, and that people bring me in sometimes, bring eight shapes in, bring consultants in to shake things up sometimes, right? To kind of like, um, uh, like my role is to sort of point things out that no one else wants to, to point out. Um, and uh, f- for me very much, what's top of mind for me very much right now, given some of the things that I'm working on is a uh, design process. Um, and I uh, sometimes feel like designers feel more attached to their mock-ups than they do to their process. Uh, and, um, I mean, I'm not saying anything new or controversial when I'm saying you don't have 100% control over what goes in the mock-ups. I mean, that's sort of the reality of, of designing digital products in any kind of organization. There's, whether it's something as stupid as the CEO's favorite shade of blue or something probably more accurate, like, hey, we, you know, we needed to, we can't build it exactly in this way because we've got these technical constraints that make it really difficult for us to get this out in the schedule that we want. Like, there's a million things that could happen. Legal said we have to do it this way. Right, right. So we've got to, we've got to uh, tweak your ideal design. So you look at a piece of, you know, or you look at a, at a product that you say designed, and you can, you remember the things that you had to compromise uh, on or that didn't go exactly the way you wanted. What you can, I think, what you where one should exert far more control is um, the the design process. Um, one of the things that I say frequently about eight shapes is that we don't have project managers. That the person who's running, uh, like the creative lead, the design lead on the project, is uh, the person who also manages the project schedule. And the reason for that is there is a um, the, the way we approach these design problems, the methods that we use and choose to use are as much in, are as important as the creative vision, uh, is that if you are the one who is coming up with a creative vision, you should also be the one who's coming up with how we realize that vision. And again, there are, I think there are a lot of external factors in terms of how, uh, organizations work, how software development works, as we talked about. Like, there's all a myriad factors, but at the end of the day, I think the the thing that I wish designers felt more passionate about were uh, was how we go about doing this. How do we engage users? How do we engage stakeholders? Uh, what techniques do we use uh, to um, find and understand and elaborate on problems. What techniques do we use to um, draw other people into our design uh, process, right? There's all kinds of decisions that people can make there that I think um, that designers can make there. And I think I see evidence that designers have relinquished the responsibility um, to exert control over process. Hmm. Are, are there pieces of that that you or you know, any specific tools that you see being used more often, like maybe in ways that are getting better, or um, 
again, I, I hate to set on tools. Tools are always right, a means to an end. But are, are there things that you generally would say, all things being equal, people should be doing more of, of this? Oh my gosh. There's like a whole laundry list. <laughs> what are your top three? <laughs> Um, top three things at the top of the list. Uh, I don't even know that these are the top of the list right now. Like Jeremy, you and I could like hang up and call each other in an hour. And I have three completely different things that are top of mind. I think, um, <laughs> uh, people are terrible at this. Oh my gosh. I'm going to, the way I'm framing this, um, just apologies. Uh, people are terrible at, at, um, facilitating conversations about design. They are terrible at it. They, um, put things in front of someone and say, so what do you think? And that is not a conversation. That is a um, a cry for help. That is a that is a desire for validation, and that is not design process, right? That is um, that is I've poured my heart and soul into these particular pixels in this particular configuration, and if you don't say you like this particular configuration, you will have uh, insulted me uh, dearly. A a, a mock-up is a excuse to have a conversation like draw value out of the conversation itself and think about how you want to have that conversation before you get too wrapped up in what uh, the pixels uh, look like so so that's awesome now for someone who just listened to that went oh shit that's what i do how would you model like a better approach for them what should they be thinking about when they before they go into that that design review conversation with either other designers stakeholders customers etc um um, pick, uh, your pick three things, three decisions that you made about the design, write down what, um, assumptions you made in order to arrive at that decision, right? I prioritized this piece of information over this piece of information. And I prioritized this piece of information because we heard in the user research that users care about this piece of information more than any other. Okay. So now you've got a decision that you made an assumption or a rationale for making that decision. And now you can ask a question about it. Did you hear that too? Is there something else that you would prioritize here? Um, do you think this addresses the need of the users? You're not asking, so what do I, so what do you think? You're asking meaningful questions about the decisions that you make. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. And I think it goes back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of people not understanding the value of design. And here you're emphasizing, well, of course, we have to be able to articulate our process and our thought process. It's not we did this because it's magic and we're special people and right. yay, take our design and run with it. It's like we've put a lot of deep thought into this and how what we're doing is going to meet the customer and business goals. Let me let me articulate that for you. A few years ago, I created um, a deck of cards uh, called IA Lenses. And this is a deck of 51 different cards with questions on them to help me help people think about the IA work that they are doing. And the reason is because it's hard to talk about IA. It's just straight up hard to talk about IA. Um, uh, specifically, if you've created an IA, how do I show that to someone and say, what do you think of this? So I created this deck uh, and I presented it to um, some colleagues. And this one person comes up to me after I presented it and she was like, how did you do this? And I was like, well, I just sort of wrote, wrote down all the questions that I ask and then I put them on cards. And she was like, no, how did you 
take your process and model it in this way. And she used this word that I fell in love with, which is externalize. And I think you just said it, right? There's a skill that we don't talk about that somehow I stumbled upon and I don't know how, but it's to sort of take what happens in my head and put it down on paper, either visually or just making a list, like just being able to sort of reflect on the mechanisms that I've used to arrive at something and ex pull those mechanisms out of my head so that I can share those with other people. Um, I think one of the reasons why Nathan and I get along so well is that we both value our abilities to articulate and to externalize um, the processes uh, that, that we do. Some of his deep thinking on how to think about design systems is intoxicating because it, um, it um, canonizes and uh, codifies these different concepts that are inherent to how to do design systems work that I think are troublesome for other people to articulate out, out loud. Um, so yes, I mean, uh, I talk about when people ask me, what's the most important skill for a UX designer to have? I say without hesitation, self-reflection, like you need to be able to kind of look at yourself and say, how can I operate differently? Or what am I doing well? How am I, you know, what are some of the strengths I can build on? And I think a big part of that is being able to externalize, right? Sort of just take, what are my mechanisms? How do I show you what those mechanisms are so we can talk uh, about them? But yeah, asked, I think that's great. It, it, oh, sorry. It's remind me of that model that we, you know, you, when you're learning, you go from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence right. to conscious competence right. to unconscious competence. Right. And on both, on both ends of that spectrum, there's an unconscious element of it. Right, yeah. And I think it's incumbent, you know, both for the beginners, like like you said, asking that question, why am I making this choice? Right. As well as for those of us who've been doing it for a long time where it's, it is unconscious. Right. If we don't ask why we made that choice and be ready with an answer, someone else is going to ask right. us. We better be able to answer that question quickly. I mean, I mean, uh, the grayer our beards get, Jeremy, the harder it is for us to be able to sort of like be the person who moves the rectangles around on, you know, on the page. Like that's just not the value that we bring to the table. And um, I've got to be able to look at a designer's work and be able to provide them some meaningful, useful uh, feedback. And I think in order for me to be a valuable contributor to the UX community or UX teams, I need to understand how I do that as well. Like how do I provide direction to someone? Because that is something I need to teach uh, the designers who I get to work with as well, like to help them uh, grow. Um, we need to be able to um, uh, articulate what it means to be a design leader of, of some sort. You don't have any more gray in your beard than I do. I'm just saying. I, it was just a easy way. I, I got a good amount here. Yeah, it's just you grow along. If I grew mine long. Yeah. Um, uh, you had asked me top three things that uh, designers can be doing to improve their practice. Was that sort of the general gist of it? And then I went off on this. Sure. Yeah, go for it. Thing. All right. Uh, so what was number? So that was number one. Was sort of be able to um, facilitate a conversation uh, about um, design. Um, and you notice I didn't say present designs, 
Like, I feel like we talk a lot about presenting a design and, and Mike Montero, you know, has talked about this a lot. He's got great things uh, to say. My approach, my style is different. I don't see it. I do see it as a kind of a little bit of a sales or you might say educational process, but part of that process is not so much presenting it, um, but more facilitating a conversation uh, about it. Um, I think there's also um, the, um, uh, ability to state a problem, uh, which I, I don't know that, um, I, I see people doing that well, um, or at all. Um, and this is, it's a hard thing to do. And I have to remind myself the right way to do it every time I try, uh, to do it. And sometimes I forget to do it. I get so excited about moving the boxes around on the page. I forget to sort of take a step back and ask myself, wait, what problem am I trying to solve here? But I think if designers, um, um, even before they kind of sat down, you know, popped open uh, their latest design tool, if they said, wait a minute, what, do, what is it that I'm trying to accomplish here? And maybe add a text box to their, uh, you know, just above the mock-up, the artboard uh, that says, here's what I'm trying to accomplish with this page. Um, just as a little reminder, because then when you go to facilitate a conversation, you can use that to frame uh, the, the conversation. Um, but it's very easy to kind of lose sight on what we, um, what we need to do um, because there's so many things that we could uh, do uh, on, in our products. Um, and so, so what you're bringing up, yeah. uh, or did you have a third one offhand? Um, no, I needed to think about it. So All right, let's well, do this. What, what you're talking about with the first two at least are more of those interpersonal conversational facilitation skills. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I've joked for a while that I think UX is a sales job. Right. Not that I like your I like your notion of facilitation better, right. but just as a way of saying that it really is more about that communication than necessarily like you didn't say people need to be better at prototyping or no. better at visual design or better personas or journey maps or something like that. It was all about that back and forth and in inclusive conversation with folks. But these aren't the skills that I think people are learning in whether I don't know about degree programs as much, but certainly not in the boot camps and the other ways that people are coming up nope. into the field. Nope. So how, especially for younger people uh, or you know people more junior in their UX career, how should they look to develop some of these critical skills? Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Look, the, uh, so again, self-serving answers. Um, you and I were thinking about this stuff along with all of our peers, as you said, 25 years ago, right? We've sort of, um, uh, I'm not saying that we have all the answers, but there is, there are, um, there's a canon of uh, literature on UX that did not exist when you and I got started in the 90s, right? There was, there was, um, uh, there was very little. We were we were cobbling together stuff, and I, you know, I'm. I don't want to make this sound like we knew what we were doing back then because we sure as hell didn't. But I think a lot of us recognized that we were breaking new ground and um, uh, tried to take some of the some of the things that we learned and put those down on paper so that we could um, 
so that we could advance the the field. I mean, I put stuff down on paper because I have a big ego, but also presumably because I wanted to advance uh, the field a little bit. Um, and uh, uh, I think there is, um, uh, as you say, greater emphasis on you know learning learning the latest tool uh, and less on um, it, acknowledging that there are these other kinds of uh, skills that exist and that um, that people have spent some time thinking about how these how these work. Uh, I love how big the field has gotten. I love how diverse the field has gotten. Um, I mean, obviously there's a long way to go, but there are so many more perspectives that we have today than uh, we did 10, 20, 25 years ago. Um, and my, my hope is uh, to start seeing articles that, uh, or books that are not so much about you know, how to do wireframes the right way or how to do personas the right way, but really take those conversations, like build on the work that came before and inject some new perspectives uh, in into that. Um, and, uh, you know, there are, um, there are folks in the field today who are, I think, bringing that sensibility uh, to the table, but there's, it's still, you know, really easy to write an article called wireframes are dead uh and get a shit ton of clicks on it so um so i don't remember your question that's what i got <laughs> um and we we're talking about like where, where to go to learn those soft skills right the the, the facilitation uh, yeah. and all that um, i mean i think also there are i think uh i, I don't the, the people that i uh get to work with um I um, I take an, uh, a leadership attitude where I really want them to kind of own the work as much as possible. I want them to kind of run the conversations as much as possible. Um, and I am there to help them when they need help. I'm there to provide some feedback, whether they ask for it or not. Um, and so like, I would love it if every UX designer could have that kind of uh, relationship. Um, I've been it does seem that a lot of designers are kind of solo, even if they're part of a team, they end up being kind of solo on a project totally. and not getting either the support of their peers or that, that mentorship from someone more senior. Right. Um, yeah, I, I put out a call in December for some new mentees. So for years I've been mentoring uh, folks. Uh, I usually mentor two people at a time and um, that we don't all meet together, but I just, I can take on two mentees. So I put out a call in December, uh, both of the mentees that I've been working with, we were wrapping up our relationships. And so it was time uh, for me to get some new ones. So I put out a call on LinkedIn. I said, I've got two openings. Does anyone want to be mentored? Um, and I was really super clear. Like, you don't get a lot of my time. Um, we'll meet a half hour each month and that's it. Like you can email me and text me and stuff in between, but you know, I can't promise that I'm going to be, I'm so I'm kind of a jerk about it. If I'm very honest, I got, I don't know, 80 people asking me to be their mentor, which I mean, I think it, that was only cause I asked like it, you know, it wasn't like it was me in particular. 
I think it was just because I, I put it out there. I think you did something similar, didn't you? Yeah. Put out, yeah. right? I don't know how many responses you got, but it was, for me anyway, it was, it's, it was shocking what people, and then I, I interviewed about a dozen of them just to say, let's see if we're compatible. And the kinds of things that people are dealing with are largely, I don't have anyone to bounce stuff off of. I don't have anyone to talk to about this stuff. So yeah, yeah so I, think I, I did over a hundred sessions. Yes. Yeah, you know, I mean, they were just one-offs, you know, half an hour each. But when I put out the, uh, the post on LinkedIn offering, like I was flooded Yes. and I, you know, I'd open up my calendar and I was doing a ton a week and I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta scale it back. So I limited the time, but you know, I, yeah. eventually I started counting. I was like, I'm doing a lot. I went back and looked and yeah, I ended up doing over a hundred. Yeah, that's amazing, um, man. Now I love, can you tell me about the, the format of that? Cause there, I'm sure there's like other senior people who would love to be able to give back. Can you talk about like how you structure the relationship, how you choose who you're going to mentor so that maybe other, maybe that'll inspire some other folks to oh, put yeah. in place a similar uh, prop program. For yeah. Themselves. I mean, it's, it's been a fairly organic process. Um, and that call back in December was the first time I'd actually said publicly, um, Hey, I mentor people. Uh, it, uh, historically, I would meet someone at a conference um, or um, uh, actually that was almost always how it happened. I would meet someone at a conference and then they would message me later and I would say, by the way, I mentor people and this is how it works. Would you be interested? Um, so, so you would make the offer to them after they reached yeah, out. Yeah. Um, cool. So I, I, um, have, have realized I am, uh, I like talking to mid-career UXers. So I got a lot of people who are within their first year of doing UX work. And I acknowledge that they need, um, that it would be great for them to have a mentor and I am not the right person uh, for them, right? Someone at that stage of their career needs daily or weekly, you know, kind of feedback um, for uh, the kind of work uh, that, that they're doing. Um, I like talking to people who are kind of at a cusp in terms of whether they are going to be a uh, leader. What kind of leader are they going to be? Um, uh, the, one of the people I wrapped up last year, um, she and I uh, just, uh, I was fascinated by her uh, career and she's a super, super strong uh, leader. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a privilege for me to be able to kind of watch that arc happen. Um, um, and I think the role that I played in that was largely as a sounding board as she kind of thought through, how do I want to be uh, a leader here? How do I want to um, position myself? How do I become someone who's not doing the work all the time and more um, leading uh, the work. Um, so that um, th those are the kinds of conversations uh, that I, I like to have. So I think if you want to get, in, if someone wants to get into mentoring, you should think about what are the kinds of conversations you want to have? What, what, what gets you excited to talk about, about these things? As we've just talked about, I don't love, I'm happy to talk IA technique with you. I'm happy to talk UI design with you, but at the end of the day, what I'm more interested in is how are you fitting into the organization and how do you, how do you facilitate those uh, conversations that you need to have? Uh, you asked about format. We just meet once a month 
for half an hour. Um, Our first session is usually, I usually kind of interrogate them a little bit more about sort of what do you want to get out of this? How are, let's say you are my mentee. How, Jeremy, what does Jeremy a year from now look like? You know, how is Jeremy a year from now different from the Jeremy of today? Um, So we can sort of at least think about what trajectory we might uh, be going on. Um, The folks who approached me in December were generally had, sometimes had very specific things that they wanted to work through uh, career-wise. And um, uh, sometimes they just were, um, had big aspirations and hoped that I would sort of counsel them in in terms of their aspirations. And again, that was not a good fit for what the kinds of conversations that I wanted to have. So I, I look at this very selfishly, like I get a lot out of this as well. So I want to be able to um, make sure that uh, we are, um, I want to feel more confident that we're providing mutual value uh, to each other. Right. So, so what made you go from um, you know, having people reach out to you and then offering the service to av- advertising it publicly and then when you got all those 80 oh my God. responses, how did you end up winnowing it down to the two people you ended up deciding to it work was, with? It was hard. Um, and I'm a kind of person uh, who, um, uh, if someone is asking for help, I want to provide help. Um, so yeah. sometimes it's hard for me to say no. Um, um, I think I think I had to reach out because I wasn't going to conferences anymore. In 2020, none of us actually went to any conferences. So that's normally yeah. my venue for meeting people. Um, and I didn't go meet anyone in 2020. Um, so um, I, I, I don't know. So I just didn't have anyone lined up. Like, um, uh, I also didn't, had never really sort of publicized that this was a thing that happened. So people didn't, weren't really approaching me. Um, I mean, I, uh, the winnowing it down was a, a little bit arbitrary. I mean, a lot of people just messaged me to say, Hey, I'm interested. And I didn't like, I didn't even consider interviewing them, uh, because like I got so many other responses, uh, where people provided me some more detail. So I felt like if you, um, really wanted to mentor, great be, point. Yeah. yeah, you'd be able to articulate, like, here's what I'm hoping to get, uh, out of, out of this. Again, not to diminish them or like, not that they didn't need a mentor or, or didn't deserve one, but I had a, um, it was a, it was a substantial, uh, effort to, to kind of, um, deal with. I didn't expect such a big response. That's what I'm trying to say. You got a ton of people. You got to find some way to kind of winnow the list and someone who gives you more information is just. Right. It gives me something. They're going to go to the top. Yeah. So I narrowed it down to about 10 or 12 folks. Um, I prioritized um, uh, women and people of color. Um, um, the I felt the community was very, very generous to me as I was, you know, growing up in this community, and I just felt and feel an obligation to sort of um, uh, give back to the community uh, in this way, especially if someone is from a, a disenfranchised um, group. Um, and then, I, and then I, I interviewed those folks and I really just let them talk about what they, what they need and what they want. Um, and I knew what I was listening for, which was um, some of the things that I just talked about in terms of where they were in their career, what their aspirations were, what were some of the challenges yeah. that they were dealing with. And, um, you know, there were some folks who were um, uh, 
are wrestling with like, should I go in house? Like, uh, they're a consultant now they should they go in house? I'm not really very good for that conversation because I have not been in house almost ever in my career. So I don't really have a lot of, uh, a lot to offer, uh, there. Um, and I don't know that I would get a lot out of those conversations, but I've got someone who is very, who's senior ish and, um, is weighing the pros and cons of becoming a people manager. Right. And that, mm. that's interesting uh, to me, right? That's, that's a, a challenge that we UXers will be dealing with for a long time. So, yeah. Now, now you said in the beginning that you were wrapping up with some people. Do you have like a fixed time commitment that you make with these folks or just sort of you, you identify that goal in the beginning. And then once you sort of I get there, say, you wrap it up. I basically say, um, let's expect this to go six or 12 months. And at the six month mark, we'll kind of check in and say, you know, is this working? Do you want to keep going? Um, and then at 12 months we'll say, okay, I think we're, I think we're done. Um, that being said, the previous two, I'd been mentoring for two years. So I'm pretty bad at saying goodbye. <laughs> well, I, I hope by tell, telling this story and sharing this, that you'll inspire a whole bunch of other people to make the same offer and and you'll you'll grow the number of mentees out in the world because of it i i i mean i i have no expectations but if if that happens that's great i mean i think there's um it's very easy for me to become jaded and frustrated um it's very easy for me to um uh run a design firm um with you know one of my best friends for 15 years and go, is this all there is? And I think there's the, what, I, what energizes me when I talk to, um, these folks is that, um, not only do I still have a lot to give, but I still have a lot to learn. Um, every conversation I have, I learn, I learn something, uh, new, uh, um, in terms of the kinds of challenges, uh, that people face, um, the kinds of challenges that say women face in the workplace relative to, to men, um, the kinds of, um, things that large or small organizations are thinking about and dealing with. Even if I don't get to interact with those organizations myself, I can see, see it through, through a UXer's eyes, a UX designer's eyes. Um, so yeah, so that's, there's, it helps me, um, stay fresh in, in some ways in this, in this world. Yeah, totally agree. Um, all right. One, one last thing just maybe yeah. to wrap this up. If you were to sort of bottom line this, like we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about mentorship. We've talked about communication and facilitation. We've talked about some of the challenges with working with the, the technology cadence and being able to have the, the time to think deeply about the problems. If you were to say like, okay, my, my bottom line, my one thing that I want people to take away from this conversation, what, what would that be? Um, I, Jeremy, I'm so glad you were doing this. Um, I mean, uh, I really, really hope um, that you get a variety of voices uh, on, uh, on, you know, on this podcast, because I, I, um, there's only so much two white guys, uh, talking can, can unpack, uh, um, two, two old white guys, 
It's true, man. <laughs> Two gray and white true. guys. It's true. Uh, um, yes. Um, so I'm I'm excited uh, that um, this conversation uh, is is happening. Um, I the reason why I'm excited that this conversation is happening is that at the end of the day, UX as a field is made of people. Uh, and um, uh, it's up to the people in the field to ensure that it is, uh, to use your words, saved, um, to make sure that it is doing what it can, what it needs to do. Um, and I think what that comes from is, uh, as I said before, sort of mindful self-reflection of, um, am I doing this job? Am I participating in this career? Am I a member of this community in the best possible way that I, I can be? Um, what, what little thing am I doing to advance the field? What little thing am I doing to give back to the community? What little thing am I doing to uh, uphold the values that I as an individual have that drew me uh, to user experience in the first place? So I think if, uh, if there's one thing I want to leave people with, it's um, please take some time to reflect on, uh, on yourself and uh, what your role and participation is uh, in user experience. Oh, that's awesome. Dan, if people want to follow you, uh, what are the best, best places to find you? on social media, et cetera. I'm at Brownorama on uh, Twitter. That's definitely the best. I'm actually at Brownorama on many, many social networks, uh, but Twitter is where I mostly talk about politics and tabletop games uh, and occasionally user experience. Awesome. Well, this has been a great conversation. Dan, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I And I really hear about what you're saying in terms of bringing in diverse voices. I think... Looking back, the early stages of UX, mid '90s, et cetera, were about as diverse as tech was at that time. Right. I.e., not very. Right. right. So I agree; it's important, and I'll be looking for uh, to get a more diverse uh, set of folks on this podcast to hear different people's perspectives on this. But uh, it's, it is a huge problem. But again, you've got a tremendous experience. You know, what almost coming up on three decades, two and a half to three decades. Uh, I so I really appreciate yeah. you yeah. sharing thanks. your uh, your experience and your perspective. Yeah. Um, thanks for so. thanks for framing it in just that way. Um, uh, Jer Jeremy, it was my, I love talking to you. And it was, uh, it was, it was my uh, great honor and privilege to, uh, to have this conversation with you. Awesome. All right, folks, you can look for the, all the notes and links to things that we've talked about. They will be up at sux.live for saving UX. Uh, all the show notes will be there, well, as soon as you can see this podcast. All right, take care and see you next episode.